You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Quarterly Women's Social Club. Days and Convicted. Blue Party Radio. Show King. The Devil's Advocate. The Projection Booth. Awful Flips. Pod, Pod Awful. Awful. Net. Support for the Projection Booth podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. y alto rango dentro de la nobleza ocultando su identidad bajo una máscara de plata como símbolo del bien al cual sirvió combatiendo a las fuerzas negras que se ensañaron contra él y la elegida de su corazón ¿Qué significa, doctor? Este símbolo protege a su poseedor contra todo maleficio Como usted mismo ve, aquí está el triángulo que se opone al símbolo que tiene el hacha ¿Y qué quiere decir la palabra abracadabra? Tuvo su origen en el nombre de un sabio que practicaba la ciencia del bien, llamado Abraca. Arimán, señor de las tinieblas, escúchame. Solo lo encontrará uno de tus descendientes en otra generación. El peligro al que se expondrá entonces será mucho mayor que el de ahora. Pero sin que él lo sepa, yo estaré a su lado. Ya le dije a usted, santo, que en este viaje que hiciéramos al pasado no correría ningún peligro. ¿Cómo se siente usted? Bien, doctor Zanoni. Y ahora que ya conoce todos los detalles, ¿qué me aconseja para encontrar el sitio donde reposan los restos de doña Isabel? haberme liberado. Ahora ya podré descansar y seguir mi camino. Tu misión en esta vida será seguir luchando por el bien y la justicia. Hola, bienvenido a la cabina para proyección. Me llamo Miguel Blanco. Con me es señor Roberto Santa María. Viva los lucha libertarians. Y también es el goro de la Hablar Sin Ritmo Podcast. Hola amigos, mi erro deslizador está lleno de anguilas. 
Esta semana estamos debatiendo la película. This week we are discussing Santo versus the Diet al Hacha de Apolica con Santo, the Balco Hatchet, el Enmascarado de Plata. The 1965 film from director Jose Diaz Morales and the 13th film in the Santo series. The film tells the tale of an ages-old rivalry between Encapuchado Negro, or Black Hood, and Santo. The narrative goes back and forth in time to show us the origins of Santo and how his mask has been passed down father to son throughout the generations. The Black Hood essentially chases Santo through the ages, even possessing one of Santo's wrestling opponents in an attempt to defeat him in the ring. El Goro, as our guest, when did you first see Santo versus the Diabolical Hatchet, and what did you think? Well, this is actually the first time I've ever seen this movie. I'm in the process on my podcast, Talk Without Rhythm, of watching all of the Santo films in chronological order. Since there are about 52 of them, I've designated this entire year of 2014 as El Año del Santo. So I've been kind of growing and uh, growing upon the mythos of Santo with each film. So this was a certainly a very interesting installment into the Santo front franchise that, while it was very derivative of some other films that had come previously, it also introduced some newer elements into the whole mythos of Santo, including a love interest, which hitherto has not really been explored in the Santo films. So how about you, Rob? What's your Santo experience? Well, beyond being called El Santo at work because of my last name, I would have to say that the experience of seeing Santo films, I think maybe I've seen two or three before now, probably the more well-known ones. I think uh, El Santo versus the Aztec Mummy or the Vampire Women. And um, was there an El Santo film on Mystery Science Theater at one point? Yes, uh, that was Santo versus the Vampire Women, or if you prefer the Mexican title, Santa contra las Mujeres Vampiro. It always sounds better in the original language, the titles of these films. <laughs> Doesn't it, though? But I have to say that um, it was it was good to see this one because the other ones, I think, were more standard in structure. And this one is is interesting in terms of that sort of time structure and various things and also having the origin story in there. I really appreciated it. The thing that's funny to me is that the film is only 74, 75 minutes long and the actual kind of plot story that uh, you'll see is maybe only 40 minutes of it because the rest of it is extended wrestling sequences. So it's in a way like we've talked about adult film on the show, Mike, where it's like make the sex scenes move the plot along here. It's like, oh, got to stop and have a wrestling scene. And they seem a little disjointed. I mean, I understand that they're part of part of the structure of what makes a Santo film a Santo film. But uh, I found the wrestling sequences a bit uh, too tedious for me at times. It was kind of weird how they would always have to go back to the ring, too. It wasn't like they were just kind of wrestling to wrestle. They would have to like, okay, now we're going back to the ring and we've got the photographer and the blonde lady and all these guys that are just going to be watching the match and the cuts to the people watching the match weren't necessarily the most exciting things in the world. And to your point, Rob, the matches themselves, it was like, okay, yeah, I'm following this. Luckily, you know, I've got a little bit of, I was a wrestling fan when I was in like junior high. So I I was kind of down with some of that stuff, but yeah, they would kind of just stop the, the plot as we were going along and such an interesting plot too. For me, I think I'd really only seen a 
couple Santo films. I think really actually had watched more of the Blue Demon. Uh, I want to say there's like a Blue Demon versus the Infernal Spiders that I might have checked out years ago. And when I was down in Cancun a few years ago, I went to who doesn't go to Walmart when they're in Cancun? And luckily they had all kinds of Santo films for sale. And you know how we have the like $3 bin when you go to Walmart today in America, they have that same thing, obviously in pesos in Mexico, and it was stocked full of Santo films. So it was pretty much a bounty for me. El Goro, having seen so many of these Santo films so far. This would be the 13th one, and I believe that you're coming up on this on your own show. So how does this kind of break with the mold, or, or how does it hold to some of the other Santo films that you've seen? Well, some of the things that have shown up in previous Santo films is the idea of the supernatural uh, antagonists uh, directly combating Santo within the ring. In this case, it's uh, Encupacho Negro, who possesses, I believe that was, um, I'm trying to remember who exactly played the second opponent. Oh, it's Juan Garza. He possesses him. And so we've seen that played out in uh, other Santo films, including uh, Santo Contra Los, Los Zombies, uh, Santo Contra Las Mujeres Vampiro. And another thing, uh, common common thing that shows up in some other Santo films is the presence of uh, Lorena Velasquez, though this is one of the few times that she has shown up as a sympathetic character because she also showed up in uh, Las Mujeres Vampiro, who is the queen of the uh, vampires, and also uh, I believe it was Atacan Las Brujas, Attack of the Witches as the queen of the witches. They play with a lot of those sort of things. Uh, But some of the ways that this movie has kind of expanded upon the mythos is that prior to this film, Santo has largely been portrayed as a character that is above any sort of romantic entanglements. There's always a love story in these Santo films, but it's usually explored by side characters. This is the first time we've shown him actually show some sort of romantic interest in another woman. Not to mention, this is the first time in the series that he's ever taken off his mask, though we, uh, for obvious reasons, we do not see his face. <laughs> Which totally reminded me, and this is this is stretching here, but hopefully you guys remember this skit. I was completely reminded of the kids in the hall when it was the Eradicator fighting the guy in the handball court. Do you guys remember that one at all? Bruce McCullough wearing a ski mask, and he came in. He was like, "I am the Eradicator." Oh. When I stand atop the D-squash ladder, then and only then will I reveal my true identity. James Thorson, I shall defeat you. Let the carnage begin. We almost won the second game. I think my mighty screen was a bit off. I think it was your serve. Do you want to unmask me? No, I'm fine. It's your right. No, everything's okay. Okay. Hey, you can always join the volleyball team. 
And that element is very present in uh, Mexican wrestling or Lucha Libre. You know, the idea that uh, these mask wrestlers, the emascarados, they will have these uh, mascara contra mascara matches where the loser is forced to unmask. And we actually see that sort of wrestling dynamic play out in the context of this film because uh, in in Capuchado Negro, his powers are removed when Santo is able to unmask him. I guess to your point, El Goro, as far as seeing a love story in a Santo movie, I guess what I picture in my head is El Santo kind of being more of someone who would bring couples together, almost like a St. Valentine or something that just says, these two are really meant to be together. Does he do that in the other films? Uh, mostly he serves as a way to uh, save the damsel in distress, usually at the behest of uh, the damsel's fiance or father or something like that. But it's, it normally it's him deflecting any sort of romantic interest, but it's largely not up until this point hasn't even come up. You know, the, occasionally there'll be a woman that will say, oh, I wonder what's underneath the mask. But it's never really implied that, you know, anybody has any sort of romantic interest to him. You know, he is very true to his name, Santo the Saint. You know, he is more an avatar of justice than anything else. Well, I also thought that maybe it was because, much like Pee Wee Herman, he's a loner, Dottie. A rebel. There's a lot of things about me you don't know anything about, Dottie. Things you wouldn't understand. Things you couldn't understand. Things you shouldn't understand. I don't understand. The relationship that Santo has with that woman is just so strange to me that almost all of it seems to take place in a car on a circular drive where it just feels like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it kind of feels like maybe they shot one scene and then they just had Santo kind of spin around the, the track and then come back and then they shot the next scene. How is that even possible? Why would they do that? I mean, of course they shoot movies in complete chronological order. What are you thinking? Low-budget filmmaking techniques in Mexican exploitation movies? No. I do love this whole mix of the wrestling with the supernatural, though. It is such an interesting way that they kind of juxtapose these two things that, to me, as an American, anyway, I don't see them necessarily going together. But then, of course, I think of you know characters like Paul Bearer or you know some of these other like supernatural wrestling characters that have come out since I was a, a kind of a WWF fan. It sort of makes sense in the context of what kind of cultural impact uh, wrestling had in Mexico that a lot of these luchadors have taken on almost um, pop hero or folk hero type status. So while it might be jarring for us to see them play out you know, adventures and take on these kind of roles in films, because there is such a background and there is such an appreciation for their adventures, and Santo is certainly the, hi- the highest exemplar of this, because prior to his film career, he had a very long-running comic book where they had already kind of laid the groundwork of him going up against you know, supernatural enemies and very pulp-esque adventures with mad scientists and that. And many of these stories that we see in the films were drawn from the comics. He kind of reminds me of like a, a Fantomas or a Diabolique, almost like mixed with a little bit of Hercules and James Bond all at the same time. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, he always has like this uh, super spy, you know, kind of thing where um, he also has an element of the detective, I notice. 
And what's funny is the week before we were talking about uh, Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter and all the films done by that collective up there in Ottawa. And Santo appears in there in much the same way, being used as the detective, being used as the super spy and all that stuff. And also kind of bringing Miss Oddbottom to Jesus and, you know, kind of putting that relationship together. Maybe that's where I'm getting that whole matchmaker thing that I was thinking about, because that Santo, or sorry, in that film, he's called Santos to avoid copyright infringement. (laughs) 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 He, uh, he, he is very, I don't want to say he's standoffish uh, with women, but he definitely is um, very much on the straight and narrow path. Yeah, and you could also draw uh, sort of uh, corollaries between the, the way Santo is portrayed with other pulp heroes such as Doc Savage. You know, he is a physical exemplar, yet he has this technological background that makes him just this hugely well-rounded character. Now, there's an interesting book that was written by Doyle Green called Mexploitation Cinema, A Critical History of Mexican Vampire Wrestler and Ape Man, Ape Man and Similar Films from 1957 to 1977. That is a long title. I just want to throw that out there <laughs> yeah i like how you had to take a breath during the middle you know that. if your title requires you to take a breath you might want to consider paring it down a little bit but otherwise it's a pretty good book and uh he identifies santo as exemplifying what is known as a counter macho political stereotype uh, to quote directly from the book he is exemplifies the modern patriarchal technocrat who is morally responsible socially responsible and self selflessly dedicated to serving and bettering the lot of the Mexican people. You know, the whole thing with the supernatural, though, the certain element of the supernatural, I think, does play, as you were saying, within Mexican culture, because you have this mix of pre-Christian culture that still moves forward mixed with, you know, Catholicism and everything that's in there. So you end up in Mexican culture and even here in America, the the folks that have come over from Mexico um, at times, certain celebrations, certain ideas, things like Day of the Dead that sort of mixes all of this uh, supernatural element as well. So it's it only kind of makes sense that I guess it would play out in their superheroes as well. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, I see some of these supernatural figures as being right there with some of the Aztec gods and demons and, you know, Quetzalcoatl and the, the winged serpent and everything can really, I, I definitely see where you're coming from as, as far as that being good fuel to play into this. I mean, and when we talk Catholicism, it's like hardcore Catholicism a lot of times when it comes to Mexican culture. So to mix those two things together, I guess this is kind of the, I don't want to say oddity because to people that are immersed in it, it's probably seems very logical and very normal, but to an outsider, it's like, what the hell are you doing? Having a, a wrestler fighting demons, but you know, Hey, it, it, it works for him. So it, it was pretty neat. And then also, I, I guess, you know, when I think about it, there was kind of more of a culture of wrestling that we had around the same time. We being Americans, you know, like I'm thinking of uh, even back to like the Warner Brothers cartoons and seeing some of the characters that were in there, like Bugs Bunny fighting wrestlers, and they're kind of based off of people that were out in the world, like a like a gorgeous George and that kind of you know the the era of wrestlers and the way that wrestling changed over the years. I find kind of fascinating to go through almost like different eras of business models and the way that some of these wrestlers were held up. So I can see what you're saying, El Goro, as far as the way that 
some of these guys would be popularized in media were probably the same way that they were popularized in American media with the American wrestlers. But we tend to forget that, and especially because I think a lot of that has been overshadowed by some of the more theatrical stuff that has gone on and some of the, when I think of, um, you know, that WWE era, WWF, I should say era of wrestling to the WWE. And I don't necessarily see like Hulk Hogan having the same place in the world that an El Santo would have. When you talk about wrestling in this era, I mean, the El Santo films came out, what, uh, they started in the 50s and then into the 60s. We're talking about a movie from 1965. And I know that in the Detroit area, there used to be a TV show called Big Time Wrestling. And some of the people who were on that show in terms of archetype characters went on to be basically taken and then used later in WWF. For example, there was the Sheik, which became the Iron Sheik that you remember back in the 80s. So uh, different different people playing those characters. But, you know, wrestling was big when TV started. It was kind of cheap, uh, fun entertainment. But I don't think it crossed over in much the same way that it appears that these uh, films in Mexico's did, these films in Mexico did into the theaters. Because I can't really think of any really wrestling films, as you were saying. I mean, there's uh, things in the cartoons, but there's really nothing that I can even think of in terms of wrestling films in the 50s and 60s, unless you want to go to like ultra low budget stuff, like the stuff George Weiss was doing, you know, the guy who gave Ed Wood his start. One of the reasons that you actually end up seeing a lot of these Mexican wrestling represented in Mexican film is because I believe I forget which actual year it was, but it was in the 50s. They actually introduced a ban on showing wrestling on television with the idea that it was corrupting the youth of the day. And one of the big things about that or one of the big uh, parts of that band actually was Santo because he was such a uh, beloved character, but he was a heel. He was a bad guy, a rudo to use the terminology of the day. So, but because so many people idolize him, they felt that it was having kind of a uh, negative influence on the children, much like we had with comic books, with the whole uh, seduction of the innocent and things like that. At this time, the only time, unless you saw it live, the only time you could actually see Mexican wrestling was in the cinema. So when did Santo kind of make that move from being a heel to being a face? I believe it was in the early 60s as far as, as um, his in, uh, in-ring persona went. Prior to that, he had, he had uh, you know, the comic books and the films. But because the films and the comic books were catching on so much of presenting him as the hero, he kind of had to transition from the Rudo, who was personified by using underhanded tactics, you know, vi- uh, very physically overpowering and cheating in order to win, to becoming a technico which is somebody who uses more technical techniques and uh, strictly adheres to the rules. And if you actually looked at how Santo wrestles in these films, you can see still see a lot of elements of his old Rudo persona. He definitely tries to muscle his way through a lot of these uh, matches. And while his technical abilities are improving as these films goes along, they're still a little rough in comparison to some of the other more established technicos of the day. Well, I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to immediately contradict myself i would think it was pretty unusual to have a good guy wearing a mask 
And the only thing I can think of are superheroes that are wearing masks or bad guys that do it. Look at something like Zorro. Did he wear the mask because he was bad? Uh, it, it actually just kind of went back and forth. I mean, he, he was wearing a mask at this time, but uh, it wasn't necessarily because he was bad because we had examples of technical wrestlers as well. It really was just as a way to kind of build a persona. You know, if by wearing the mask, it was a very distinctive look. And originally he had, uh, when he started wearing the masks, he had wrestled under the name, uh, he'd gone through a couple different names, one of which was uh, Demonio Negro, which was the black demon, and one can only assume that he was wearing a black mask at that, and Musielago 2, otherwise known as the Bat 2, but he ran into some trouble with Musielago 1, who made him uh, not, was didn't take too kindly to... Uh, well, this time, this was Rodolfo Guzman Huerta, which is the real name of Santo. Bat 2, I guess, kind of playing into the whole Batman idea as well. You know, the, the keeping of the secret identity and everything. But, yeah, it's I, I like the idea of these kind of larger-than-life characters and the wearing of the mask and everything. And I especially like the way that they played that into the whole mythos, the the mask being this indestructible force with the the label on it that says abracadabra and how that kind of plays into it. And I like the early version of Santo, the one from a few centuries ago where we still never see his face. And for some reason, it didn't really dawn on me for a while that I wasn't seeing this character's face uh, and then realizing, oh yeah, he's had his back to me the entire time and has been wearing this big, you know, flouncy hat and everything. I, I really kind of appreciated that they wanted to expand the mythos, you know, centuries and centuries old. And did anybody else get kind of a wizard Shazam vibe off of the wizard that gave Santo his powers in this movie? Yeah, I definitely did. Yeah. It felt very, um, what was the, the green, the guy that gave the green lantern, his lantern. It reminded me of that a little bit too. What I find interesting in this film is that there's both science and superstition at the same time. There's this doctor and he has these contraptions and he's been doing all these experiments and various things and he's helping Santo and helping him get in touch with time travel and all this. So there's this like science fiction element and then there's this supernatural element on top of it. So it's like if science fiction isn't going to work for you, then you can always call up the wizard and he'll help you too. I think it's kind of speaking to, you know, the the two things that we're pulling on Mexican culture at this time. There was a push towards becoming, you know, a modern country and embracing this technology, but there was still the acknowledgement of those, uh, you know, supernatural roots that were, again, very rooted in uh, uh, superstition and religion. So, El Goro, how does this kind of compare to the other Santo films that you've seen so far, as far as the enjoyability factor. Uh, there were a lot of things in this movie to enjoy. I actually liked the uh, the antagonist in here, the Black uh, Hood, who's uh, played by Santo series regular Fernando Osses. Fernando Osses has shown up in virtually every single Santo film I've seen so far. We're going back to the very first um, Santo movie that came out, Santo Contra El Cerebro del Mal, if I'm remembering correctly. I, I jokingly refer to him as uh, the 
Sven Ole Thorson to Santos Arnold Schwarzenegger because that's another guy that just keeps showing up in those movies. But it was it was nice to see a real physical threat against Santo. A lot of times you'll see him fight, you know, nameless goons or uh, evil scientists that somehow have impeccable wrestling ability. There was actually a sense of menace to Encapuchado Negro. I'm always going to mess up that name. There were there were a lot of things that are again very uh, just elements of the of the series. The fact that yes, it was incredibly low budget. Yes, it was constructed in a way that really didn't seem to have any kind of conventional cinematic flow. There was a lot of jump cuts in this movie. Yeah, it definitely felt a little low budget as we were talking about before you know rob before i forget the one thing i wanted to say you were talking about the whole science versus superstition and i found it a little ironic that it was the same actor who is playing that doctor the dr zanoni and the abraca the wizard character though obviously wearing like the big white wig and everything but it was kind of neat that it was the same dude playing both and so he's basically encapsulating both the science and the superstition by using the same actor and the other thing i found interesting and i don't know if this is just an imdb thing or if this is true but the guy that you were just talking about el goro uh, fernando osis that he actually was responsible for the story for the film. I don't know if he took part in the screenwriting for it, but probably helped craft this uh, time travel mystery type thing that we had going on with, with the framing of the story. So, hey, more power to him. Yeah, and that's another thing that shows up very, very frequently. Fernando Osses is usually involved in the stories for these uh, Santo movies so far. I mean, the guy, he's a good wrestler in his in his own right. He used to be a wrestler back in the day and then transitioned into filmmaking. But yes, he usually would come up with storylines story and uh, would play various roles. If you watch these movies, you will see him pop up a lot. Yeah, I think he even moved on to being a proper screenwriter rather than just a, a story credit and then even um, started directing in the late 70s. So pretty fairly talented guy and I definitely would not want to go against him in the ring. He and Santo definitely have a lot of really excellent matches in the course of this series because and it's one of the, one of the problems that I had with this movie, at least as far as the wrestling goes. You know, the first person that uh, Santo goes up against is Guillermo Hernandez, who is not a great wrestler in his own right, and as a, as a result, he's really not able to put over Santo. You know, Santo works best when he's playing a, or against a guy that is usually smaller and more athletic than he is, so it can help sell a lot of Santo's power. So whenever he goes up against Fernando Osas, which we saw in some of the in in this. In in, while Fernando was playing in Capuchado Negro, you you got a much more dynamic uh, action sequence. And that's one of the things that keeps popping up again and again in this series is just how much uh, in-ring ability Fernando Osas has. Well, you were talking about the low-budget production on this thing. And I have to say that even though it was low-budget and those wrestling scenes, as I said, dragged a little bit for me, I thought that it was really quite... Um, bold in a lot of ways having this time travel plot having this sort of 1600s version of santo and the black mask and and all of this stuff i mean it, it goes a lot more places for a low budget film than you would really expect i think for a low budget film it would just be okay there's the bad guy there's some wrestling scenes and then he beats up the bad guy and in the end he wins i mean 
But to have all of this other stuff in there, I think just adds another level to it that that kept my attention, even though I found the wrestling scenes to be a little tedious. The one thing that really grabbed me was that the movie begins with the burial of the man in the silver mask, you know, putting him into the coffin. I was just like, holy cow, what the hell is going on here? A little bit of uh, art imitating future life, because uh, when Santo did die, he was indeed interred wearing his mask. It was his it was his identity. He very rarely unmasked in the public. I've heard that the the streets were just filled with people when Santo passed away just because he was such a national hero, which, again, is kind of strange for us to think about over here. Like, okay, you know, when Junkyard Dog passed away, there were not throngs of people going nuts about it. Obviously, I'm warned, but, you know, it wasn't that kind of a ceremony. Yeah, I mean, he was a character that managed to cross so many boundaries and became a, a very much a cultural icon in Mexico for years and years. And I can't imagine being a kid growing up in Mexico and having this kind of mythos available to me. I mean, I probably would have been right there with my Santo comic books, my Santo novels, my Santo whatever, my lunchbox, all that kind of stuff. I would have been eating this stuff up with a spoon. Well, he definitely captured my imagination when I was a child because I spent part of my childhood growing up in Arizona. So we had a couple, you know, Spanish language television shows or television channels, stuff like Telemundo and stuff like that. And the first time I ever became aware of Santo was when I was flipping through the channels and then I came across a black and white wrestling match with this crazy masked guy fighting another masked guy and then they're they're going at it and all of a sudden they rip off the, one of the guy's masks and it's a werewolf underneath. <laughs> Ever since then, I've been a fan of Santo. We're going to take a break and play an interview with Bob Cotter, the author of Mexican Masked Wrestler and the Monster Filmography after these important messages. One dark and stormy night in the mid-80s, Joe Bob Briggs, Harlan Ellison, and the ghost of El Santo pulled a train on Elvira while Siskel and Ebert sobbingly masturbated in the corner. From that union arose the greatest movie critic and luchador that ever lived. But we're not going to talk about him. He's kind of a dick. Instead, we're going to talk about me, El Goro, the stuttering movie fan and host of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. Every week on Talk Without Rhythm, I discuss two to three movies tangentially tied together by a theme. I cover action. And the most complete fighter in the world. Sci-fi. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Horror. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. And the continuing adventures of James Spader, sexual deviant. You're not worried that I'm going to fuck you, are you? I'm not interested in that, and I'm waste. Now pull up your skirt. So check me out at TWORpodcast.blogspot.com, drunkenzombie.com, or subscribe on iTunes. Talk Without Rhythm, the only podcast that will not attract the world. Adios! Life's complicated. That's why Dazed and Convicted has health and lifestyle tips to really help you with those day-to-day dilemmas. The only way to stop the itching and burning and sedate the empty feeling is to wear a butt plug for an hour. Plus relationship hints. You know, Rafe tells a gal all she needs to know about a guy. Recipe ideas. Place thumbs, anus, scrotum, and testes in the freezer. Information on local community services you may not know about. A lot lizard is quite simply a prostitute who works truck stops and rest stops. And health advice you can trust. Lesbian humping with a man in the room running a camera and adding his man splash to the festivities can can help prevent breast cancer. 
health, and lifestyle on the Dazed and Convicted podcast at dazedandconvicted.com. Life is so busy. From my job to my family and all the things in between, sometimes you need to make a little time for yourself. And I found something nice to make those times oh so sweet. It's vibrators.com. Vibrators.com has the perfect products for women, men, and couples. And if you're new to all this, they have plenty of helpful suggestions and information to make sure you get something just right for you. Plus, for over a decade, Vibrators.com has taken your privacy seriously. Go to the site and read all about it. And right now, when you use the special code BOOTH, that's B-O-O-T-H, at checkout, you'll receive free priority shipping on any order from Vibrators.com's huge catalog. That's Vibrators.com. Do something nice for you. I wanted to ask you how you got into writing and specifically how you chose to write about exploitation films. Actually, uh, I, I kind of got into writing on... Uh, in, in, in through the back door, as it were, I had been putting out a fanzine for a number of years called Santo Scene. You know, I've been putting that out since like '97 or '98. I forget what it is, and and uh, then uh, I happened to be at a convention, uh, a Monster Bash convention, one year, and uh, McFarland had a table there. And I just went over to tell him that I thought it was great that, you know, somebody was doing such a, a fine line of, uh, you know, genre books. And uh, uh, the rep said, uh, I said, well, you know, I've got to be getting back to my table. And the rep said, well, who are you with? And, and I said, well, nobody. I'm with myself. I, I put out a fanzine about Mexican films. And... Uh, and uh, I said, oh, you know, I'll drop you off a couple copies. And, and I didn't think anything about it. And uh, then a couple hours later, she came back to my table and asked me if I'd like to write a book for him. The, the way I got into him, I mean, I'd, I'd been, uh, I'd just been into him for a lot of years and, uh, you know, decided that, uh, really nobody had done anything like that before i mean there are hundreds of books you know done on classic cars and karloff and lugosi etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know uh nothing had really been done on the mexican films before now how did you get into santo proper and how did you start doing the zine uh, basically the same reason i did the book i uh, i mean i saw um you know various films throughout my youth and and you know never really got into it as a whole and then uh i forget when exactly it was but i i just i saw one that like a little light went on in my head and said man this this is really cool you know and and i gotta check some more of these out and so um you know in in those days uh even with video, I mean, they're, uh, you know, before, way before DVDs, uh, they were still hard to find because, uh, for instance, at the time I wrote the book, there were a number of films that were thought to be lost, and then 
since the time I wrote the book, they found most of them. So have you thought about kind of going back and doing a volume two or a reprint of it with the new information? McFarlane doesn't like to do updates, and I haven't really thought about a volume two. I'd certainly like to write the whole thing over again since since it was my first book, and, uh, you know, I, I was uh, really unsure of my footing. When you approached Santo and really more the, the entire masked wrestler phenomenon, how did you kind of go about it? How did you decide how you're going to dive into this world? Because it is such a deep pool once you get into it. I basically just looked at it as Mexican versions of Batman and Superman and stuff like that. And they fought monsters and, and uh, you know, those were certainly right up my alley. I, I think subconsciously it, it may go back to the days of uh, whenever I was a kid and I would watch uh, a program called Studio Wrestling on uh, WIIC here in Pittsburgh and uh, the host for the show was Chili Billy Cardilly and of course he hosted uh, Chiller Theater and the um, he would always show clips of what was going to be on Chiller that night and so I, I think subconsciously there was sort of a already a link between wrestlers and monsters, you know. Tell me a little bit about the whole luchador scene when it comes to Mexico. Where does the wrestling end and the movies kind of begin? That line has been blurred for a long time. I mean, the it I mean, obviously, I mean, they they don't, you know, fight vampires and werewolves in real life. Uh, well, not that I've ever heard of. They wear their mask every time they go out in public. So the public never sees them without their mask. Only their their family and very closest friends have ever seen any of the Mexican wrestlers without their mask. I mean, it, you know, I, I mentioned Batman a little while ago. Well, imagine if Batman was real to an extent and he walked around you know in his mask and and uh that's uh see wrestlers in mexico are sort of the equivalent of guys that play football here i mean they're it's it's huge i mean people grow up of of dream you know of being a professional football player here while in mexico they dream of being a professional wrestler how far back do the mexican wrestler movies go i mean in mexican filmography kind of stuff when when did that really kind of start to happen the first one was a uh, a movie serial uh in uh you know the the first a quote unquote santo film proper was made in you know as far back as i believe it was 1952 and it was a movie serial just like you know american serials and uh, it was called Ellen Mascarado de Plata but at the last minute Santo decided against doing it. Another wrestler, El Medico Asesino, 
took the role, but they still called it Ellen Mascarada de Plata. Although there were a couple instances, neither the wrestling nor the horror really took off until about 56 or 57. Then, of course, El Vampiro was made uh, starring Gamron Robles and uh, uh, other classics, uh, you know, like the Aztec Mummy. And uh, the first Santo film proper was made in 1959. What do you see as kind of the seminal films when it comes to the Mexican wrestling films or even Mexican exploitation? Santo versus the Vampire Women, probably at the top of my list. It's, it's probably in a tie, as I always say, with uh, the Wrestling Women versus the Aztec Mummy, which is uh, another great one. And uh, I love all the early period Santos. Uh, well, I love them all, but, you know, I love them differently. I mean, you know, the 1970s Santos, you know, sort of... I don't know, took on the look of like the streets of San Francisco or something like that. And, and uh, they just uh, weren't as, as fun anymore, weren't as fanciful, like uh, Santo versus the Martian invasion or something like that, where, you know, the Martian, you know, women like disguise themselves as showgirls, you know, in order to seduce Earthmen. I mean, it's it's nuts. You mentioned the serial where it wasn't Santo in there, but when it came to proper Santo films or proper, you know, Blue Demon films, was it always the same guy playing those roles? Yes. Uh, although um, occasionally they'd have a, a double do the more dangerous stunts, but as far as... Uh, the wrestling and everything went, yeah, that was, that was real. As a matter of fact, I mean, most of the wrestling scenes in Santo films were taken from real wrestling matches and, and, uh, you can tell, uh, which ones are studio bound really. You mentioned that the wrestlers would go outside in their masks. Was it something that people would do like to try to unmask a wrestler either in the ring or outside of the ring? Well, uh, of course, in the ring, they had mask versus mask matches. You know, occasionally uh, some, you know, two high-profile wrestlers would engage in them. And the one that was unmasked, was never allowed to wrestle in a mask in Mexico again. As far as the public goes, I imagine some jerk tried it at one point or another, but by and large, I I think they had too much respect. Hablas Espanol? Slightly, but you don't want to hear me speak it. I was wondering if that ever became kind of a stumbling block for you, being unable to locate either dubbed or subtitled prints of stuff. I should know more, but I I do know enough to get by, and especially Santo films uh, or or most of the uh, Mexican wrestling or monster films, nothing against the films, but they're not exactly hard plots to follow. I mean, they're like American movies. I mean, they're basically comic books that are brought to the screen. And and so, you know... uh, 
once you know who the bad guys are and who the good guys are and everything in between, and you know you're you're pretty well set. You know it does help to know in some cases just to just in case uh, there's like an in joke in Santo versus Capulina. Santo promises to show Capulina some llaves. Yaves has two meanings in Spanish. It it means holds, as in wrestling holds, or it could mean keys. And so, you know, Capolina is all excited because Santo, he thinks Santo is going to show him some holds, and Santo, like, dangles a set of keys in front of his face. Where does the Blue Demon kind of fit into this whole world and some of these other wrestlers? The Blue Demon was, uh, he was the Avis of Mexican wrestlers. He was he was second, so he tried harder. I mean, uh, he was the, literally the most popular Mexican wrestler uh, after Santo. He didn't uh, really start making movies until... Uh, his action, uh, an injury limited his action in the ring. Was it one of these things, like I know, you know, Toei had Godzilla and Day or whoever had Gamera. Was it one of those kind of things or were they ever in movies together? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Uh, Santo and Blue Demon uh, made a lot of films together. Uh, Santo uh, and Blue Demon in... Uh, the other world, uh, Santo and Blue Demon versus El Doctor Frankenstein, and probably the most famous, uh, Santo and Blue Demon versus uh, Dracula and the Wolfman. How long did Santo make movies for? From 1959 right up until before his death in 1984. He retired from the ring. I mean, not long before that, and he was still doing strenuous physical work outside of the ring, you know, in shows uh, up until the time of his death. If you had to venture a guess, how many movies do you think Santo was in? 51. For a while, he was the top-earning box office star in Mexico. I mean, he was like he was like John Wayne was to us. I mean, you know... Santo films were, and you know, plus they they, they offered uh, a little bit of something for everybody, you know, action and mystery and comedy and singing and dancing and monsters and you know, God knows what else. You wrote primarily about the masked wrestlers and and monsters. But when it comes to exploitation, what are some of your other favorites as far as, you know, like a, a Brainiac or something outside of the Lucha Libre? Well, uh, the Brainiac, obviously, um, that's a great one. Uh, I love uh, The Ship of Monsters, Nostradamus films with uh, Guillermo Robles. The series, you know, were mostly in the Mexican wrestler films. I mean, there were very few characters that they went back to over and over. I mean, there were, you know, a lot of movies made with vampires or werewolves, but they were 
basically different every time. There wasn't like any Paul Nashi or, or Lon Chaney to carry the same character through uh, several movies. If someone were coming to the Santo films completely cold, where would you recommend that they start at? What would kind of capture the essence of Santo and make them want to see more of these? Definitely Santo versus the vampire women. I, I mean, uh, that that's, you know, basically got everything in it. I mean, uh, Santo exposing the, the masked wrestler who turns out to be a werewolf and uh, just just all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's it's really uh, the the pinnacle of Santo movies. That you know, like I said, that and uh, wrestling women versus the Aztec mummy. Of course, the uh, the film you talked about, wanting to discuss uh, a diabolical hatchet, is uh, certainly uh, one of the. Uh, more bizarre ones. It, it explains the the origin of Sa- Santo. I mean, uh, he, he's. It, it turns out he isn't just a wrestler. He's more like, you know, the Mexican version of the Phantom, whose mask has been handed down through the generations. And I mean, half the film is like swashbuckling. It's not wrestling, and and you know, oddly enough. Santo wears the same costume in the 15th century that he does in the 20th century, except for a, like a plumed hat, you know. That's a great one, and, and uh, he has a foe that can literally pop up at any time, anywhere, you know, uh, in you know during his wrestling matches or, or uh, perhaps the the scene that everybody talks about. He materializes in Santo's bedroom, and it turns out that Santo sleeps in his wrestling mask, his cape, his tights, and his boots. And it's like, okay, you know. (laughs) Sometimes people have a hard time getting out of character. Yeah, you know, and and so, uh, well, there were uh, there were a few scenes uh, in a few movies, uh, and this was one of them, uh, where uh, uh, like a, a pretty lady, you know, unmasks. Santo, but it's they they always show him from the back. That that happens in Martian Invasion too. So obviously you've written a lot more than just about Mexican wrestling over the years. You've written about Ingrid Pitt, about Carolyn Monroe, Doc Savage. What are you working on currently? Nothing. I have a few ideas, but uh, I. Uh, it's been kind of hard to get it back together ever since the stroke. And and I've 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 had more trouble than I I thought I would putting together something. So I've got a few ideas, but I'm just uh, waiting to, quite frankly, have a few more tests and stuff.
thanks to Mr. Katea for sorting out the Santo story for us. You know, Bob compared Santo to Batman and football players of old. And back in the days when people like me, Joe Green, or Joe Namath were both heroes on the field and on our TV or movie screens. So to take another uh, look back at an old episode that we did before, I suppose that, you know, really I would relate Santo to somebody like Kiss, who started off as a rock band, but kind of morphed into something more with their comics and cartoons and movie, of course, where they gained superpowers. You know, we talked about Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. And I'm not really sure in the age that we're in now, where everything is kind of under the microscope and, you know, people are broadcasting tweets, for God's sakes, that we could have these kind of legendary heroes of old in this modern world. And I just kind of wanted to throw it out to you guys. If you think that in this kind of media saturation that we have these days, is it too much to even have people like this kind of stand out? Was it easier when there wasn't as much media, you know, when it was El Goro, where you're talking about flipping around on your television set and seeing Santo beating a, a werewolf, you know, there were probably, you probably had like, what, six TV channels back then? Just about, yeah. So do you guys think that we could have a Santo or a hero like this today? I think you could have one in a limited capacity and it would burn out in a couple years. To to have somebody with the kind of staying power that we would have with Santo, uh, it it would be very, very difficult to pull off. I mean, the most we have is uh, that kind of gets this sort of media saturation would almost be professional athletes. But one of the things we seem to love in America is building up our heroes just so we can tear them down. You know, you see it's all too often when somebody raises gets to a certain level of success, there almost seems to be a delight in some people to turn on them and to just, you know, completely destroy them. It's it's the cycle that we have. But to have somebody with this sort of, you know, 50 plus years staying power of Santo, I don't think we could ever have that. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think that the media world in which we live in today really does rip the mask off of any type of hero that we could have like that. And it'd be very hard. I mean, I think that people want to hold on to certain things like that. And I think that's why you see a love of more retro ideas in terms of the superhero. I mean, the reason why Batman keeps coming back, why Superman keeps coming back. And even the people that have played those characters, like, for the, for example, Adam West still gets a decent amount of attention. I think that people have a love of that idea in that era, but it's it's something I don't think that we can do today. I wonder sometimes if that's one of the reasons why we cast relatively unknown people when it comes to a lot of the superhero films, like thinking about the originals, well, not the original Superman, but let's say the Superman the movie back in the late 70s. Christopher Reeve, relative unknown, hadn't really done that much before. Fresh-faced guy coming onto the scene. I would say the same, and people are probably going to you know, nail me to a cross for this, but the last guy that played Superman, I didn't know him. I didn't know Brandon Routh before Superman Returns. I wonder if that's kind of us giving us the ability to add this mythos to some of these actors or what that is. But I, I, yeah, I definitely agree that we don't really 
take too many people and try to append superpowers to them too often these days. Though the cynic might argue that it's the uh, reason they cast unknowns is strictly economical because unknowns don't command as high a salary. Well, I also think it's also that. Plus, when we talk about the um, the one Superman film, what, 10 years ago, where Kevin Spacey played Lex Luthor, you're like, oh, it's Kevin Spacey playing Lex Luthor. It, you know, it's like, yes, I, I like him. But the problem is, is that when they put them into these um, iconic roles, it really kind of um, it, it's sometimes hard to separate it out, I think, for an audience member. And I guess we could say the same thing about Gene Hackman. By that time, he was already, you know, Popeye Doyle. He was already all these different characters. So I wonder if it would have been just as difficult for somebody seeing a Superman film back then to separate themselves out with the Lex Luthor. Though I thought it was very smart of them to keep the whole bald thing away until the very end rather than him playing it with the bald cap through the entire film, which kind of made us think that we weren't getting the Lex Luthor of the comic books, but a different one. And then it ends up being that Lex Luthor, which I, I found to be very, very, very smart. What you're saying, El Goro, as far as the way that we hold up athletes sometimes, I can really see that. I mean, I'm thinking of even just a few years ago with the whole Linsanity thing that was happening, but even going back just a, just a few years prior to that, and it wasn't even, even a whole lot of years, but thinking of like Michael Jordan and the way that he was kind of being held up as this almost like demigod, or even like the whole uh, Bo Nose phenomenon where it was Bo can do anything, and Obviously, these are commercialized figures that we're getting, but sometimes the commercials were what we needed to kind of build up this mythology, and they were almost like these little mini-adventures that we would see these athletes in. Well, if you want to see the deification of an athlete, I, I lived in Cleveland during LeBron James, and yeah... If you want to see a, an entire city turn on a man, there's a perfect example right there. I was there when they were burning the jerseys out in front of the uh, basketball stadium. What can I say? In Cleveland, we are desperate for heroes. So anytime we see anybody with a little bit of talent, or in LeBron James's case, a lot of talent, we are quick to get behind them. And if they don't live up to our expectations, or if they abandon us, we will turn on them very, very quickly. You know, Rob, one of the things I was thinking of while I was watching El Santo, and it could have just been the supernatural aspects of the diabolical hatchet, I was reminded very much of Coffin Joe as I watched the film. Oh, yeah. 1965, low budget, black and white, just the set design, if you want to call it that. Yeah, I, I had the same thing, <laughs> especially with some of the supernatural elements. I mean, you don't have the dead coming back from the grave and haunting Coffin Joe and, you know, pushing him back into the grave or anything like that. But I, I definitely feel it because I would say that probably that, that idea of supernaturalism within Brazilian culture is probably at the same level at this time as it was within Mexican culture as well. And I'm starting to see uh, c comparable uh, comparisons between, you know, the Coffin Joe series that are creeping into these luchador films, particularly one that was released the same year as Hacha Diabolico, uh, Blue Demon Contra El Poder Satanico, that has a brief cameo by Santo, so I felt obligated to cover it on my podcast. But there is a character in there that the Blue Demon has to go up against. It's this hypnotist named Gustavo, whose whole thing is to hypnotize women, take them back to his lair, 
have sex with them and then essentially immolate them inside of a kiln. It's very, very mean spirited and harsh, especially in light of these, you know, relatively kid friendly luchador films that we've seen. So as I was watching, I just kept thinking, man, this is really like Zeta Kashal. You know, Coffin Joe. You kind of just described my Saturday night. Hey! <laughs> I know, I was getting a very big uh, don't-go-in-the-house vibe when I was watching the movie, too. But I think you have to add another level onto it when you're talking about Coffin Joe, in that he is ultimately doing this because he's trying to find the perfect woman. So really, it's about dating more than anything else. Well, t- systematically tearing down every Catholic institution that has ever existed or will ever exist, ever. You can make that comparison between Coffin Joe and Santo in that Coffin Joe is the guy off the screen just as much as Santo is the guy off the screen. The, you know, Coffin Joe does not cut the nails when he's not in the films, and Santo doesn't take off the mask when he's not in the films. One of the best stories when it comes to Coffin Joe is that he ran for, I think it was mayor or something, of Sao Paulo, and his character got more votes than his actual real name. Jose Bajica Marins, and um, they, uh, he didn't end up winning because <laughs> he kind of split his vote between his actual legal name and all the people that voted for his character as a write-in. And it's also worth mentioning that, you know, he had a comparable impact in Brazil because he also had, you know, comic books and extended um, status in the society. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that in Brazil we had this huge anti-Catholic character, and in Mexico we had a character that really personified a lot of traditional Catholic values with headbutts. I kick ass for the Lord! As far as Mexican films go, this is one area that I will admit to not knowing a whole lot about. Either I know a little bit about Santo or I know stuff about like some hardcore art films, uh, you know, like talking about uh, some of Jodorowsky's work or really his cinematographer, Rafael Corchiti. But there's not a whole lot of stuff in between for me, other than possibly some of the stuff that I've seen on Mystery Science Theater 3000. So how about you guys? What kind of exposure do you have to exploitation, and what can you recommend? My exposure is still at this point relatively limited to uh, the Luchador films. I mean, as I said, I'm trying to go through all of them, and I'm sure I'll be branching off into other elements of exploitation uh, as I go along. But uh, if I need to make one recommendation, the Santa Claus movie. That movie is so twisted and weird. Well, there you go. Yeah, that's an MST3K classic, and yeah, fucked up. Stop. I, Lucifer, King of Hades, command you to stop and disappear. Be gone, all of you! As for me, I don't know much um, exploitation films beyond the the wrestling films. I mean, I have seen some of the Blue Demon films and, like I said, a few of the Santo films. So I can't really go much further than that. And the only other exposure to Mexican film in this era, be it the 50s and uh, mostly in the 50s, would have been the stuff that Buñuel was doing. So, But that has nothing to do with, <laughs> with exploitation film. Take a shot. He's a fan of the show. Always know when you have fans on. There you yes. go. <laughs> we are going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. Always and Jay Scott of the Toronto Globe and Mail claims, every so often, the limits of screen acting are redefined and expanded. Harvey Keitel has given the kind of performance a generation is defined by. I got uh, two young girls. 
I shot Ned twice each. I don't know if they're still wearing the rounds now or what. Bruce Williamson of Playboy calls it a dark morality play with shock value to spare. Bad Lieutenant spells out themes of hypocrisy and sexual obsession with the intensity of a nightmare. Just put $120,000 on tomorrow's game. This guy will come by your house and blow your house up with your wife and kids and everybody in it. You know, right? No one can kill me. I'm blessed. Jamie Bernard of the New York Post exults. Skillful and unforgettable, Keitel does some amazing work. There's nothing to think about. Either you put in my bed or you get nothing. Roger Ebert of At The Movie says, Bad Lieutenant is my own choice as the best discovery of the Cannes Film Festival. Come on, give us a break. You do something for me and I'll do something for you. What do you say about that? Peter Travers of Rolling Stone magazine claims, Harvey Keitel whacks you like the business end of a Louisville slugger. It's a powerhouse performance in a film of jabbing intensity and wit. Bad Lieutenant. What else you say, Mr. Badass Phil? That's right. Grab your iguana and stay tuned for our upcoming episode on the Bad Lieutenant films. That's where we're going to talk about the 1992 Abel Ferrara film and the 2009 Werner Herzog sequel. Okay, I don't think so either. Anyway, <laughs> it's great to talk to this week's guest, host El Goro, for coming on the show and talking to us about all things Santo. And uh, folks listening at home, why don't you tell them a little bit about the show Talk Without Rhythm, and uh, is it true that you're actually wearing a mask as we speak uh, because you do not want anyone to know that your true identity is, um, yeah. Yes, I never take off the mask. I live the El Goro life every single day. Uh, Talk Without Rhythm is a movie discussion podcast that uh, used to have a co-host, and then he decided he wanted to uh, pursue other things, and podcasting was not one of them, so I've been flying solo for the last couple months now. Every episode, I uh, select two films that are kind of tied together by a theme, though all this year, 2014, I'm also going to be covering a a new Santo movie movie every episode so 52 santo movies 52 weeks in the year it's el año del santo and if anybody wants to listen to that they can find it at tworpodcast.blogspot.com or through my podcasting network the drunken zombie podcasting network which can be found at drunkenzombie.com and of course i'm on itunes stitcher all good places where podcasts can be found so I want to ask a little bit more. I know you're doing the whole El Santo, El Año del Santo. What kind of other stuff do you try to focus on? I mean, obviously with a with a name like Talk Without Rhythm, you're a Dune fan. Have you covered Dune? What other kind of stuff can folks expect other than Santo films when they go over to check you out? Yeah, yes, we have actually covered Dune. We can, we paired it up with uh, James Cameron's Avatar as an exploration of messianic sci-fi movies. But really, uh, it's all over the map. I didn't want to tie myself to one particular genre, but because I am such a nerd, my tastes do tend to lend towards you know these sort of peripheral genres, stuff like you know horror, sci-fi, action films, uh, just 
was the episode I just put out, featured discussions of 1988's talk radio paired up with 2008's Pontypool. So it was all, all radio-themed uh, movies. And the next one that I'm that's going to be put out, depending on when this episode comes out, is going to be taking a look at the new French extremity films with Inside and Martyrs. So that should be a fun little episode. Really, there's no rhyme or reason to what uh, the movies I pick. I try to pick two that are tied, kind of tied together, but I have a broad taste in movies, so you can expect a little bit of everything. So Caddyshack, Caddyshack 2, anytime soon? I don't, I don't I, we may have actually covered Caddyshack at some point. I don't remember. I think we paired it up with another golf movie. But no Caddyshack 2? I don't think so. I, you know what? I'll, I will readily admit, I actually haven't seen the second Caddyshack. El Gora, I have to say, you were kind of born to do either radio or podcasting. You and Rob both have this whole voice for radio thing going on, and I, I'm very jealous of both of you. Oh, thank you very much, sir. I actually tried to get into radio, but uh, ended up working in computers. Funny how life works. But actually, you know, what's funny is uh, I may have a voice for radio, but Mike has a body for porn. So (laughs) that's how it worked out. You know, I got the voice. He got the body. And this is this is where we are. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, we will be sure to link over to your stuff, Algoro, when this episode goes up over at our website, projection-booth.com. Gracias por estar aquí y muchas gracias a todos por escuchar. Hasta la próxima semana.
Just passing by, boys. 